0: So Our passage today is going to be Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, the story we just read about how Jesus comes to the synagogue on the Sabbath to heal uh, this crippled woman. Let's turn our attention now to God's word that we just read, and let's dig right in. So our passage starts with Jesus doing something that we see him do a lot throughout the Gospels. He's going to show up in a local synagogue on the Sabbath. Uh, and he's likely going to lead and teach in some kind of way. This would have been a very common practice throughout Israel as Jewish people would have rested and gathered for worship for the Sabbath. And if you read Luke's Gospel, you see this scene really play again over and over. Jesus comes to the synagogue on the Sabbath. A lot of a significant part of Jesus' ministry is going to take place in the synagogue on the Sabbath. We see Jesus preaching and teaching here. You think about the beginning of Luke's gospel, really the very beginning of Jesus' entire public ministry begins in the synagogue. Uh, we see this scene in Luke 4 where Jesus shows up on the Sabbath in the synagogue and he reads from the prophet Isaiah and he says he's come to fulfill the words of Isaiah 61 how God sends his spirit upon his anointed to proclaim good news to the poor liberty to the captives, and to bring sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed. So Jesus' ministry starts in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and really all of Luke's gospel in many ways, including our passage, is a fulfillment of this scene in Luke 4 where Jesus shows up and announces what his mission is going to be. So the context of this passage, again quickly in Luke 4, Isaiah 61, is important. Because, again, it frames Jesus' entire ministry that we see all throughout Luke's gospel. In Luke 4, when Jesus shows up in the synagogue to preach and teach and reads from Isaiah 61, he's actually quoting from a part of Isaiah that mentions God's restoration of his post-exile people. In the four gospels, Jesus really presents himself as a restoration prophet someone who has come to gather and restore God's people and fulfill all of Israel's long-awaited promises. So in our passage, uh, we see that in the midst of Jesus uh, likely uh, leading or teaching in the synagogue in some way, we see this woman uh, suddenly appear. Luke says that she's had this disabling spirit for 18 years and that this physical illness resulted in her back being bent over so severely that Luke says she could not fully straighten herself. So our passage doesn't elaborate, but we can imagine, can't we, the enormous suffering that this woman had endured for a very, very long time. Her body's become so deformed by her own condition that she can't even raise herself up. We can imagine how painful this would have been. How difficult it would have been for her to even have a face-to-face conversation with someone else. Again, we can easily imagine this profound misery, again, that she has endured for a very long time. How debilitating this condition would have been and destroyed her ability really to live anything like a normal life. The life that most of us live, a life of labor and play and relationships with others. Another layer of suffering for this woman would have also involved her likely being a social outcast in Jesus's day. Someone who would have had, uh, been at the absolute bottom likely of the social ladder. Someone who probably would have had to have, have begged and completely rely on the mercy of others just so that she could survive. She likely would have been an outcast among outcasts. Someone who had absolutely nothing of any value that she could have given Jesus other than herself. And this is not to over-spiritualize or downplay the embodied nature of this woman's suffering, but we can also see in her a picture, really, of what Satan's kingdom and the effects of sin have produced, really, in every human being. We can't overlook the clear connections our passage gives us between her suffering and the work of Satan and evil. Luke mentions this several times. And so we can conclude that Satan really wants everyone to be in a spiritual condition that is similar to this woman's physical condition. Deformed, crippled, miserable. Augustine says something similar to this when he wrote in a sermon on this passage. He wrote, the whole human race is like this woman bent over and bowed down to the ground. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis uh, in his space trilogy that he writes, his science fiction books, you'll remember that he picks up on this same kind of imagery. When, uh, in one of his books in the space trilogy, he has a group uh, of aliens, an alien race, and they describe human beings as the bent ones. So Satan and evil, evil are all about robbing people of the beauty and the dignity that comes of being an image bearer. All human beings are created to be queens and kings, co-rulers of God's creation. But again, in this passage, we see such a profound picture of how evil wants to destroy it and distort it and reduce image bearers to something much, much smaller. Okay, so what happens when Jesus encounters this woman? What does he do? What does he say? We see a very quick set of... Actions that are very simple. We're told that Luke calls her to him. And he says something very simple to her. He just says to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And then we're told that instantly, Jesus completely reverses her entire situation. Luke says that he puts his hands on her and that immediately she's made straight. And she begins to glorify God. Let's quickly look at the details here of what Jesus does when he heals her. First, I want you to notice that Jesus' healing is phrased in terms of bondage and freedom. Notice that uh, we see this in verse 12 and later it shows up again in verse 16 when he says to the ruler of the synagogue that Satan had bound this woman for 18 years. And again, this is a fulfillment of Jesus' own mission statement that he mentioned earlier in Luke 4 that we mentioned at the beginning, where he preaches in another synagogue, and he says he's come to fulfill these words of Isaiah, uh, that the Spirit has anointed him to bring liberty to captives and to the oppressed. This language of bondage, of slavery, also tells us that Satan is all about making people slaves to sin and suffering. He's about stripping away, again, the beauty and the glory of God's design for human beings. And so the language of slavery here is used to talk about the work of Satan and evil and how they rob us of good things. They strip away dignity and agency of image bearers. The early church father, Irenaeus, he once wrote this. He said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And that is exactly what we see in our passage and Jesus healing this woman that Jesus reveals God's glory in this deep profound way by setting this woman free from bondage to Satan and making her fully alive. So what do we see here? We see that Jesus and his kingdom is about bringing freedom to people who are enslaved. This is not some kind of autonomous freedom where we live independent of God, but real freedom, true freedom, the freedom that reveals the glory of God and being fully human, a person who is enabled to be who, and she, uh, who the person that um, God created him or her to be. I think also about the fact how Jesus comes to her and he, he touches this woman. It's interesting to note when you read the Gospels, Jesus does this again and again. When he wants to heal, often he'll, he'll go towards people and he puts his hands on them, on at least 11 different occasions, we're told that Jesus touches someone who is sick in order to heal them. We see touch throughout the Gospels from Jesus in ways that are significant. We can think about the passage in Mark and Luke uh, that mention how people brought their young children, very young children to Jesus so that he could touch them. And when the disciples find out about this, they don't like this. I think this is a waste of Jesus' time. So we're told that Jesus becomes angry with his disciples and he exhorts them to let the children come to him. And then Jesus, we're told, he takes these children in his arms and he blesses them and he lays his hands on them. We also think about times in the Gospels where Jesus merely speaks a word and heals people. But more often than not, he doesn't do it that way. Instead, he chooses to put his hands on various people. And again, we should pause to think about why. Why does Jesus heal in this way? Again, Jesus could have healed everyone by simply saying, you're healed. But instead, Jesus seems to like touching people. We, think, we can think about some of the most significant scenes in the Gospels that includes touch from Jesus. Think about John 13, one of my favorite parts of the Gospels, where Jesus takes on the humility of the lowliest slave and he touches his disciples' feet, we told that he washes their feet. So again, why is this? Why does Jesus seem to prefer touching people in various ways? Well, this is just one of many ways that we see God's desire to come close to his people, to draw very, very near to them. People of God, God does not love us from afar, does he? He comes really close. He touches us. He comes close to us and his touch is about his gracious love and care for sinful people. And we see this truth not only in what Jesus does in the gospels, but when we stop and think about it, you can see this truth all throughout the scriptures. How does God first create Adam? We're told in Genesis 2 that God breathes into Adam the breath of life. The kiss of God as Peter Lightheart has said in a Sunday school class on Genesis Think about depictions of this scene in Genesis as well, the famous painter Michelangelo and his interpretation of this. Think about his, his, create, his scene of the creation of Adam. Do you remember the scene? How God's hand reaches out and touches Adam. Think about how the Bible ends. How does it end in Revelations chapter 21 and 22? It ends in this scene where heaven is joined to earth in a way that John says is similar to the way that the bodies of a bride and groom come together on their wedding day. And so this final scene of the Bible includes the hand of God also coming to wipe away all the tears from the faces of his people. Again, this action is all about how God draws near, how he's come close to touch his people. Jesus' action here of healing this crippled woman is also extraordinary when we consider his own cultural context that would have had an extremely low view of women and where misogyny in Jesus' day was was pretty much the norm. Sadly, the first century world was one that was still dominated by the philosophical views of people like the Greek philosopher Aristotle, who basically taught that all women uh, were defective men in some way or the other. That they had no inherent dignity and worth that was rooted in the fact that they were co image bearers of God. And so we see that Jesus views this woman in a way that's very different from how most people in the culture would have seen women as well. He sees a person, he sees a human being made in the image of God, a human being who had suffered greatly, a human being who was a daughter of Abraham, he says. Who was precious in God's sight no matter how much her life had been wrecked by the effects of Satan and suffering. What we also see in this miracle of Jesus is the remarkable humility of God. Consider who it is that's drawing near to this broken woman. It is Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, the radiance of the glory of God, and the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one. Uh, who created all things, and the one for whom all things are created. And yet this is the same Jesus in our passage who's going to stoop down and draw near to this sick, helpless woman. It's interesting to note here in our passage, and you see this throughout the Gospels, that Jesus really isn't concerned about how he presents himself as strong, Instead, he demonstrates the humility of the strength of God in granting mercy to a very weak, physically broken person. And so what does Jesus want us to do? He wants us to emulate the same kind of strength in the lives of other sinners. In Jesus' kingdom, power and strength are not about control over others. Instead, power and strength are demonstrated in the display of mercy towards the weak. Okay, let's move on in our passage. What happens after Jesus heals this woman? Well, we really read something that's just as remarkable almost as the miracle itself that he performs. We read from uh, Luke that the ruler of the synagogue doesn't like it. He's not pleased with what Jesus has done. He's not glorifying God after this crippled woman has been restored. No, he opposes Jesus. He becomes angry with him. So much so that Luke says that he is indignant. This leader of God's people is angry at Jesus for what he has done. He believes that Jesus has broken God's rule for the Sabbath. Notice what the religious leader says. He says, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, but not on the Sabbath day. So what do we see in this? So this response of the ruler of the synagogue to Jesus It's very telling regarding the state of religion in Israel's time during Jesus' day. It's very sad what we see. What we clearly see in this man's response is that he had divorced God's law from love. And it's incredibly chilling to see how convinced this man was that he was right. In his mind, he's using airtight logic and he's seeking to be faithful to what God has commanded in his law. His objection to Jesus has this arrogant tone that seems to be communicating a settled fact about the Sabbath that Jesus has clearly violated. And his views in our passage are really just one part of an overall picture that the Gospels give us about the tragic, twisted state of Israel's faith that uh, had developed in the first century. Many of Israel's leaders, including popular groups, Like the Pharisees or the scribes or leaders of the temple in Jerusalem and others, when you read the Gospels, it's clear that they had totally lost their own way when it came to knowing who God truly is and what he had called Israel to be and do in the world. Many within Israel's religious leaders had gutted the very heart out of their own faith and replaced it with rules and principles that actually communicated hatred and dishonor towards God. other people at several places in the gospels we see a similar scene unfold in our own passage how israel's leaders were outraged at jesus that he would come into the synagogue and heal on the sabbath later in luke jesus warns the scribes of this kind of empty faithless, and loveless religion he says this will be worthy of greater condemnation Now, when we read scenes like this from the gospel, when we read the opposition from religious people to Jesus, it's overwhelmingly clear and obvious that this is wrong. This is bad. It's not hard to spot the Pharisees in the gospels and see their errors. But people of God, the church in every age should read the gospels and discern the warnings the warning they give us about the very real possibility of reducing biblical faith to an external set of rules or teachings that are really just devoid of love for God and love for people. The people of Israel were clearly not immune to this, and so neither are we, neither is the church in any age. The gospels teach us that Jesus' priority in his ministry was to relieve the burdens of sin and suffering the human beings were carrying, that was his mission, That was his focus. That's what he devoted his time towards. And so this must be our mission as well if we're going to model our lives and our ministry after the Lord Jesus. Again, the church in any age, especially in our own age, is consumed with so much fear and rage. We must be on our guard to focus all our attention on Jesus' mission. To relieve the burden of sin and suffering that all human beings are carrying. We relieve the burden of sin by proclaiming the gospel, the gospel of repentance and faith to sinners everywhere. And we relieve the burden of suffering through practical acts of mercy for the weak, those who are physically and spiritually broken. Jesus calls us to offer the love and compassion of Christ to our families and your neighbors and the people you work with and your friends and anyone else that God puts in our lives. And again, we all must be vigilant to ensure that Jesus' mission continues to be our mission, his mission of relieving the burdens of sin and suffering. People of God, if anything other than his mission becomes our greatest focus, our greatest passion, even if it's something good, then we really are in danger of becoming like Israel's leaders in Jesus' own day. If we lose, Jesus' mission, then we are in danger of becoming people who are zealous, like many of the religious leaders were, for all the wrong things. People who are angered by all the wrong things. People who reject loving God and people in favor of a hollow, legalistic religion, a religion that actually opposes Jesus instead of honoring him. Okay, so how does Jesus respond? to the man's response to what Jesus did in this healing. Jesus' response to this man's cruel, faithless anger with righteous anger, with perfect anger that flows from his love for this woman and his desire to glorify God. Notice what he says. He says to the man, he says, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So what is Jesus saying here? First, Jesus wants us to highlight what we mentioned just a minute ago, that this religious leader had a view of God's law that was totally devoid of what mattered the most, God's love, God's compassion for the weak. And as a result, this man had become someone whose faith was really more about being callous and cruel. Jesus mentions in verse 15 this common practice of untying animals from the feeding troughs something that everyone did, even on the Sabbath. And so he wants this leader of the synagogue to see that he has more compassion and concern for his animals than he does for people, even people who are part of his own community, people who are members of God's covenant people. In verses 15 and 16, Jesus, he plays on these words, untie and bound, highlighting again the ruler's cruel absurdity and having no problem untying his oxen, but essentially not being concerned with the woman that Satan had tied up with suffering for 18 years. Jesus wants to make the woman's awful condition clear that Satan had degraded her and bound her in a way similar to how the Israelites tied up their own oxen and donkeys. Jesus makes it clear he values this woman, that she has dignity in his sight. And again, we see this in the fact that he describes her as a daughter of Abraham. And calling her a daughter of Abraham, Jesus wants it to make really clear that she's a part of the people of God. She's not outside of the people of God because of her condition. And you see this question all, all over the Gospels come up again and again. Who belongs to the people of God? This is a question that is raised in a variety of ways And Jesus answers this question in a variety of ways throughout the Gospels. We see Jesus define who belongs to God's people in ways that would have offended many of the religious leaders in Jesus' own day. Loose Gospels include, among God's people, a number of individuals who would have been considered outsiders. People like Gentiles and Samaritans and Roman soldiers and tax collectors. All kinds of people on the wrong side of Israel's culture wars. You can flip over a few chapters and see the hated chief tax collector, Zacchaeus, later in Luke. He also will be called a son of Abraham when he responds to Jesus with faith and repentance. So Jesus also, he wants this ruler of the synagogue to see that his healing of this woman actually doesn't contradict anything that God had commanded about the Sabbath. But instead, he was fulfilling the Sabbath laws, not doing away with them. In Deuteronomy 5, uh, you read about uh, this, one of the Sabbath laws. And one, of the, we read that one of the reasons the Israelites were told to celebrate the Sabbath was to remember their freedom, as we read in Deuteronomy. That they were once slaves in Egypt, but now they've been set free. So in God's design, freedom and rest are made to go together. And Jesus emphasizes this connection in verse 16 when he mentions the necessity of the woman being loosed from the bondage to Satan on the Sabbath day. You can also read the scriptures and see that the Sabbath was God's gift to his people, a gift that would enable them to devote specific time for rest and for worship. And so Jesus warns the synagogue leader to see that there's no better way for this woman to actually obey the Sabbath than to be healed by Jesus because of Jesus' action, she is now able to rest. Her body is able to rest for the first time in 18 years from her tremendous suffering. And the result of this now is she glorifies God in a new and in a deeper way. And so we see that Jesus' mercy and compassion towards this woman, it pushed against the heartless religion that had become so common throughout Israel in Jesus' own day. And people of God, if we want to pattern our lives after Jesus' life in this way, then we also will be pushing against much of what is popular in our culture today. The sad fact of the matter is that we live in a world that bombards us with messages all the time. Implicit messages, explicit messages that normalize degrading human beings and to view them as things instead of image bearers who have unique intrinsic value and worth. Uh, I had lunch just last week with a college pastor of a, of a large uh, evangelical church in town, and he, we were just talking about kind of current cultural things, and he shared with me this new sort of disturbing trend of, in sexual sin that he had been, begun seeing more outside of his church, and this was something that actually began to infiltrate uh, some of his, stu- his students. So this trade involves older women who will seek out younger men, and older men seeking out younger women in order to wine and dine them for a weekend and go to exotic locations, pay them a substantial amount of money, all in exchange for the expectation of a sexual relationship. So what he was really describing, I think, is the new face of prostitution that is becoming more culturally acceptable. And sadly, again, that, that is the world that we live in. That is the world uh, that, again... Um, promotes degradation for human beings. A world that teaches us that we are to use people as a means to an end. We are to view people as things or objects that we dominate and control in order to get what we want from them. We live in a world where too often callousness and cruelty towards people, like we see in our passage, has become the norm. A world where many of our leaders, openly or privately, would endorse or engage in things that the Bible would call wicked or abusive, things that demean and humiliate human beings. And so Jesus demonstrates for us what his kingdom is all about and how we can bring his kingdom to bear in our fallen world that teaches us to crush and debase people in a variety of ways. In Jesus' kingdom, people are valued and loved simply because they are created by God instead of being viewed as things to use and then throw away and discard. In Jesus' kingdom, people are moved with compassion when they see the suffering of others. They move towards suffering people. And again, that is an emphasis that we see all throughout Luke's gospel, especially in Jesus' own parables. Think about some of the most popular parables that Jesus teaches in Luke. In the Good Samaritan, we read about a Samaritan, and as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and he sees the man who'd been beaten and left for dead, and we're told he has compassion. Think about the prodigal son, Right? The parable of the prodigal son in Luke. The climax of this story is when the foolish son was still a long ways from home. What happens? Do you remember? The father saw him and felt compassion, and he runs and embraces and kisses his son. One of the many remarkable things we see in the Gospels is that Jesus often notices people in ways that we often would ignore or downplay. We can think about this scene in our own passage, a woman that likely would have been passed over by most people there. Or also scenes later in Luke's gospel where we see Jesus point out a poor widow in the synagogue and he praises her because even though she gives very, very little, Jesus says she gave out of her poverty, not out of her abundance. And so if we want to be countercultural people, this means we are to be people that demonstrate in word and deed Christ's care and concern for other human beings. And again, we see that as a countercultural thing, as the best possible way for us to do evangelism. If we want to be salt and light and show Jesus to our dark world, then this means we must be people who reject degrading behavior that the world justifies and instead embrace the ways that Jesus loves and cares, and he's constantly moving towards sinful people. So, people of God, are we noticing? the suffering of people around us that's happening all the time? Are we slowing down enough to recognize it even here in our own church community? And does the suffering of other sinners evoke compassion from us, a love that propels us towards people instead of avoiding them? Uh, Recently, in the last couple of weeks, my wife told me this beautiful story that I think really powerfully illustrates what we're talking about here How loving people like Jesus is one of the most powerful ways we proclaim the gospel in our sinful world. So I'll briefly share the story. So my wife is a nurse at a local, large, very secular hospital. And she shares a story about how one of her shifts, she's working at the nurse's station desk. And there's a phone being used by one of the doctors on the unit. And he's speaking to one of his patients. So my wife is sitting there overhearing this conversation that this man is having has something to do with a man speaking to a woman, and the woman has received some kind of bad news about a test that she had recently, some sort of diagnosis that was, that was pretty serious. So my wife Jen said that she's blown away by the time and the care that this man devoted to speaking with this woman. He asked about her family and how she was doing. He did his best to reassure her and comfort her in the midst of this terrible news that she would recently received. My wife said that in a profession that can be cold and callous and uncaring caring towards people, she was just floored that the doctor would have taken the time to care for the woman in this way, but it gets better. Uh, the doctor then goes on to ask the woman, can I pray with you? And so what does he do? He proceeds to pray with this woman over the phone and what he basically prays through with her is Romans five, three through five. That mentions how God can use our suffering for good only through faith in God, God uses our suffering to produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope has not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Jim, my wife, says by the time this doctor finishes praying with her, she's crying. Uh, Just because of the display that this Christian doctor uh, had at work for a suffering person that most people blow through, uh, do their job, uh, and often do not care about. This is a Christian who is going to demonstrate Christ's mercy in this really practical way. And that's a great example of what we're talking about for us as Christians, to love people like Jesus and to just slow down long enough to notice suffering people and to move towards them with compassion in a way that's, that's very countercultural. The final thing I want us to see in our passage as we begin to close our time in God's words, I want us to think about Jesus' miracle in our passage as giving us a foretaste, a foretaste of God's eternal Sabbath, a Sabbath that has already been inaugurated in Jesus' own death and resurrection, and a Sabbath that we will fully enter into when Jesus comes again. We read this just a few minutes ago in our service from Hebrews, how the author of Hebrews mentions Uh, this kind of sabbath when he urges his audience to not be like the people of israel in the exodus generation who failed to enter into god's rest because they didn't persevere in faith and obedience hebrews also mentions how jesus later in hebrews it says our great high priest he actually sat down at the right hand of the father in the heavenly sanctuary after offering up the final sacrifice of atonement for sin. Now, this is significant because priests in the Old Testament, they never rested in the sanctuary. They were always at work. Um, But Jesus now rests. He sits at the right hand of his Father because God's work of atoning for our sin, is finished. It's complete. And so now we rest in the infinite love and favor of God. So there's a sense that that Sabbath has has already begun. But we're also waiting for the final inauguration, the final completion of of this sabbath day we are longing for this final sabbath rest and we know that it's coming again when Jesus comes to this earth and he fully heals our bodies and he rids our world of every last remaining stain of sin and evil and so what we see in this miracle that Jesus performs in Luke 13 is the foretaste of our future where we're all headed and when we read miracles like this this should only kindle our hope for our certain coming future, the day when our crooked bodies and our crooked souls will forever be made well. And in that day, we will see the Lord Jesus face to face. We will experience one final act of healing in the resurrection of the dead. And we will glorify him like we never have before. And finally then, our souls will rest forever. Amen.